0: Well, good morning. Happy New Year's Eve. So, um, hmm. So it's always fun to get to talk to all of you and to tell you about God and about Jesus and what he's like. And, you know, we want to know him the best we can. Uh, This morning, in order to just know him better, we're going to be studying a a very interesting passage um, in John chapter 2. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn with me there. John chapter 2. And we're going to read verses 13 through 17. So, The Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem, excuse me, in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you for your word and thank you for this opportunity to get to know you and to learn about you. Um, I just pray that you would send your Holy Spirit upon this whole thing going on here um, in this, this little building on on Lindemar Boulevard. And I just ask for uh, some wisdom in communicating your word and just uh, that your spirit give the words to speak and that uh, you would be working in the hearts and minds of everyone here to know you better and to know your love for them better. We um, I mean, just ask all of that in Jesus' name, amen. So um, we read this passage and you think of Jesus, you know, there's like that saying, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, and this is not that Jesus. This is Jesus with a whip driving people out of a temple. Uh, In our walk with the Lord, we want to come to know him every way that we can. Uh, We want to know all about him, what he likes, what he doesn't like, what he cares about, what moves him. You know that things move God? Uh, He feels compassion. He gets angry. Uh, He delights in his children. He's zealous for things. And so things move God. And something about this scene, this scene in the temple, it moves God. He feels, um, excuse me, it produces in him, he feels a, a physical and, and a verbal response that's unlike anything else in his public ministry. It's really the strongest physical response we see. Uh, he made this whip of cords and he drove people and animals out of the temple. He pours out their coins and he flips their tables over. And it's a, you know that mental imagery is taking these tables and just physically flipping them over. And that's that's our Savior there, doing that. So what was it about the scene that produced in him this extreme reaction? Why did it move him? Because we're told at the very beginning of the passage that this event occurred at the time of the Passover. The Passover was one of three great feasts of the Jews. Every year they would celebrate the Passover About 50 days later, they would celebrate Pentecost. You recognize the name from Acts. And then at the end of, well, not the end, around September, October, they would celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And attendance at these feasts was required for every male by the law of Moses. And what the Passover was, the Jews considered this the greatest of the feasts. Um, It was a celebration of well, I guess first, it was a remembrance, a remembrance of the bitterness of slavery in Egypt, and then a celebration of God delivering them from that. And there was also a celebration of God bringing them into Canaan, into this promised land. And so uh, I think to this day they eat these bitter herbs to remind them of the bitterness of slavery in Egypt, in the world, when they celebrate the Passover. Now, for them to celebrate that, it would be kind of the same emotion you or I might feel when we remember what God saved us out of, right? Before God got to us, we were slaves or in bondage to our own passions and to the world. God saves us out of that. And then God saves us into a new life with him. He redeems us out of the old life, saves us into a new life with him. And so these people that are celebrating the Passover, they would have this sort of emotion, this sort of excitement to be a pilgrim and to go to the feast and to remember where God had brought them from, from the miracles God had done to get them out of there, and then the miracle God had done sustaining them through the wilderness and into the promised land. So they're... They're excited about this, and they'd bring their their families. It's, the males were required to attend, but they would bring their family. It wasn't just the men that went. Uh, Jesus went with, I'm sorry, well, Jesus did go, but Mary and Joseph were told they went every year to the Passover feast. And then we know they took Jesus because one year they forgot him, and they had to go back and get him. Um, so uh, for them, that was about a five-day walk. So the importance of attending this feast to them was pretty high. You know, five days there. The actual thing they celebrate was about eight days. We'll talk about that later. And then they had to walk back, too. Uh, it was a significant devotion, we'll say, for the pilgrim to go to the Passover. Uh, during the feast, the uh, population was swelled to about, well, conservative estimates, a little over a million people. Uh, Josephus tells us two and a quarter million people coming to Jerusalem, coming to the Temple Mount, about a 17-acre piece of land. That they're coming to. Um, Alma Heights owns about twice that here. So that's (laughs) a lot of people coming to a small place. Now, the law required that each person or each family would bring an animal sacrifice for the Passover. It literally says they couldn't show up empty handed, Um, you had to bring an offering. And it had to be from the flock or the herd when they came. And it had to be without spot or blemish. So what you would do is you'd bring your animal, and then you'd go to the temple, and they had priests at the temple. It's where the the priests served. And you could take your animal to the priest and have them inspect it. And they'd say, okay, this animal is acceptable for sacrifice. And then the animal being acceptable for sacrifice, the priest would then take it, sacrifice it to the Lord on behalf of the people. Now, these people, they love God. They're coming here to the temple with their offerings. They're praying to him. They're there to learn about him, to worship him. And it's out of obedience. This is all required. They're obeying by attending. They're obeying by sacrificing. Now, Jesus was keeping the command here, and he goes up to Jerusalem. Now They describe it as up because Jerusalem's about... What was it? Well, it's just higher than most of the stuff around it. So geographically, you would go down to places that were lower, um, and then you'd go up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was up on a hill. Uh, We think of up as I go up to Oregon, I go down to Mexico because it's north and south. But they thought of it as I go up to Monterra Mountain and down to anywhere from there because everything around it's lower. So he goes up to Jerusalem, and... He finds in the temple those who are selling oxen, sheep, and pigeons. These are the animals for a sacrifice. And probably years before Jesus comes this time, somebody thought, well, all these people have to travel with animals, and that's not easy. So what we'll do is we'll sell animals for sacrifice, and that way the pilgrim can just bring money, buy the animal from us, and then sacrifice it at the temple. There's nothing wrong in and of itself with that. But pretty soon someone thought, well, what if we made this a little more central? We could sell these animals in the temple. People would have more access to it. Um, now, the problem with that is that the priests control the temple grounds. They don't own it, but they have control of what happens there. And so they're going to get a cut of the sales of these animals. And then pretty soon, the priests are also doing the inspections of animals. So pretty soon, what would happen is you would bring an animal, and the priest would inspect it and say, well, that animal animal doesn't work. You have to buy our animal. And Caiaphas, the high priest, ends up owning this whole thing by Jesus' day, and he's making millions off the sale of animals. Um, And it allowed them to charge an exorbitant sum for this animal. And it went from a service that could just help the pilgrims out in their worship to pretty much religious theft. Now, you'll notice they sell pigeons. The, the law for bringing an offering said that you had to bring an offering according to how God had blessed you. If God had blessed you a lot, you'd bring an ox, you know, you'd bring a, a sheep. And if you were poor, you'd sacrifice a bird. Now, that means they're selling to the poor. And... To buy a pigeon inside the temple, there's records of this, that this approved, this pre-approved pigeon in the temple cost 20 times what a pigeon outside the temple grounds cost, what the going rate was. So you could go to the marketplace, just buy one for $5, and if you wanted to go into the temple and buy one to sacrifice, it's going to be $100. This is what they charge a poor person. So if you've ever had the feeling of, like, being taken advantage of monetarily, that's what these pilgrims were experiencing. They just came to make an offering to God. You know, and God required it of them. But the religious leaders are taking advantage of them, milking them for every penny. And, and it's important to understand that they're taking advantage of something that was required, as mandatory by the law of Moses. And so th- these pilgrims are kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place, like, You or I, if somebody said, I'll sell you a pigeon for $100 when I could get it for $5 somewhere else, we'd all just say no. No thanks. I hope you never succeed in this venture, right? But in order to sacrifice, they kind of had to buy from the priests. And so they could get gouged or they could obey God's law. And they they would. They'd obey God's law. And that's why Caiaphas made the millions off of it. So Jesus found that when he came to the temple. And he also found the money changers. And I think it's interesting that he describes them as as sitting there. It kind of gives you a sense that they're just comfortable doing what they're doing. Now, what the money changers would do, um, God understood that the temple required upkeep. Church requires upkeep, temple requires upkeep. And so in his law, he said, hey, everybody 20 years and up, every male 20 years and up, has to pay half a shekel once a year to support the temple. So it was the temple tax, and that was God's law. And there's nothing wrong with you know, God collecting money for the priests to support the temple. But people were coming from all over the world for this pilgrimage to the feast. And so they'd come from Rome with their Roman coinage. And they'd come from Greece with their Greek coinage. They'd come from Egypt, Egyptian coinage. And the law said that they needed to pay half a shekel. So they needed to change their coinage for shekels, for temple shekels. And when they do this... Uh, And it started out that this was just a service for pilgrims again. And they used to charge a small percentage for the change. But by Jesus' day, we're told that um, they'd be charged, one, to get their half shekel, and they'd also be charged for any change they got so that the exchange rate, well, not the exchange rate, the charge, the fee, ended up being 50% of what you're exchanging. So let's say you or I went to, we're flying to our favorite foreign destination, um, you're traveling, you get there and you have a $100 bill, you go up to the currency exchange place. You say, okay, I, I want to exchange this for this local currency so I can go enjoy you know, my vacation spot. You say, what's it going to cost me to do this? And the guy says, $50. You give him a $100 bill, he's going to give you $50 worth of stuff. Cost you half of what you're going to um, get back. You're right. I would think, well, you're crazy. Might not tell the person that, but we'd we'd go try to find another way. You know, black market, whatever. There has to be a better way for this. Um, and, you know, this, again, was entirely owned by Caiaphas at this point. That's what Josephus tells us. Owned by Caiaphas. He's making millions of dollars off it every year. Um and so it was being done in the name of religion, but really it's it's an oppression of the poor, oppressing those who came to worship God, those who were obedient to what God had called them to do. Now, imagine you being one of these pilgrims. Say you're in Greece and you're, say, lower middle class and you save up for a year, two years to be able to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, to go to God's temple where God's Shekinah glory had come and dwelt in the past. And in your mind and in the Jews' mind of that day, that was the place to be closest to God. So you travel there, you're excited, you're going to take your sacrifice. And instead of, well, instead of experiencing something pretty glorious, it starts out with them just taking advantage of you go to sacrifice your animal, and the priest says, no, I'm sorry, you can't sacrifice that animal. You have to buy this overpriced one. You go to pay the temple tax and go to exchange your money because you want to follow God's law, and then you get charged 50% of what you go to exchange. And then this was happening in the temple. It's it's something, you know, pagans often wouldn't treat people that way. And experiences like that where people try to take advantage, they they just feel pretty terrible. That was the experience they would have show up to the high, temple mount with high expectations, leave thinking he's been robbed. So it's this scene, this scene with the people selling the oxen, the sheep, and the doves, um, pigeons, and this scene with people exchanging money that Jesus walks into. And it's this sort of lack of concern on the part of the religious leaders for the people of God and for their worship and for the temple that was unacceptable to Jesus. And so unacceptable, he felt he needed to correct it right then and there. He didn't, you know, oh, we'll have a meeting about this. Oh, let's start a little committee to change it. He took physical action. Again, this is your Savior. It's not what you think of him most of the time. But he took physical action on it. it. Moved him to a righteous anger. And that's it's important to distinguish righteous anger from anger um, righteous anger is an anger that's motivated by a concern for others. Um, and some of you have probably felt righteous anger where somebody's mistreating somebody else and you're angry, but you're just, you really want to protect the poor, protect somebody. Selfish anger is probably more common for us. We're fallen, God knows us, we're selfish. And so you're driving on the freeway and somebody cuts you off and you now have a selfish anger. You're know, like, I can't believe they would do that to me. And, you know, you might be right in a sense that what they did is dangerous. You can be technically right about things, but still be selfishly angry. It's not a righteous anger. And if you were really motivated by concern for the other person that cut you off, you'd be happy they got to go in front of you, right? But that's not how I feel, at least, when I get cut off. I won't speak for you. But Jesus has a righteous anger. And in that anger, he makes that whip of cords and he drives all these people out of the temple. Now it's interesting, the Passover, I've, I've talked about the Passover. And really God expands the Passover from, there's this one day feast for the Passover. There's a seven day feast immediately following that called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And in order to get ready for that feast, the Jews had to remove all traces of leaven from their house. They would sweep everything out. Um, To this day, the book that they read during the Passover, during those feasts, they keep them wrapped and protected the whole rest of the year so they can only bring them out to read them during the feast when there's no leaven. They're very fastidious about this. Today, they'll pour boiling water into their sink and on their tabletops to just get rid of all traces of leaven. And leaven in the scriptures is a a symbol of sin. And they had, they would have had in Jesus' day, they were preparing for the Passover, they would have been cleaning all their houses out. So it's interesting that God here, or Jesus here, is cleaning out his father's house. And I think people would have seen that and sort of drawn the connection. So, you know, I just spent a week cleaning my house and Jesus here, he's cleaning out the temple and talking about his father's house. He's doing the same kind of thing. Um, I think it really would have connected for them. They would have understood what he was saying there. I think that there is value for us to, now this was an annual feast for them. I guess it's the new year tomorrow. There's value for us to periodically think about What kind of leaven, what kind of corrupting influence or sin has just worked its way into our lives? We drift with time away from the Lord. And um, I think it's important to sort of take some time to ask God, talk to him and say, you know. God, search me, search what's inside of me. And help me to get rid of anything that's gotten in that shouldn't be there, anything that's sort of taking me away from you, from from being what you've created me to be, from being what you freed me out of Egypt to be, what you delivered me from. You know, so often we go back, the Israelites did, they looked at Egypt, they said, oh man, all the great things we had there. Um, and, and And sometimes we... We can have that mentality and it's good for us to take time and remember what God delivered us from and to um, do a bit of house cleaning, let God do house cleaning in our lives now Jesus says something interesting as he's cleaning out the temple he says do not make my father's house a house of trade um Now, it's important to understand the temple had a purpose. We're told, we know now, that it was a shadow of what heavenly worship will be like. God designed the temple. He gave the specifications for it. And um, it was intended to be a house of prayer. It was designed by God for worship, for people to come and meet him. When the priests sold animals there and exchanged money there, they'd reduced this awesome place of worship to a gift shop. Its function as a place of worship would be interrupted by the bleeding of sheep, the smell of animals, the clanging of coins, the haggling for prices. So they'd taken this thing that was for drawing close to God and made it an overpriced market. The temple couldn't function as both. It can not be both God's house and a house of trade. It couldn't function as both a house of prayer and a house of worship and a place of being price gouged. The the one thing replaces the other. Um, This would have been a particularly strong impact on the Gentiles because that's where they would have... Well, let me step back. Because the temple was laid out the very, very middle of it. Holy of Holies. This is where, you know, glory of God dwells. And then... Outside of that, you've got the holy place. And then, I think next thing outside of that, you'd have sort of the court of the priests, where the priest could minister, and you had different temple instruments. Uh, outside of that would be the court of the Israelites, and then the court of uh, women, and then farthest out, court of the Gentiles. So a Gentile, I'm, I'm a Gentile. Uh, most of us in this room are Gentiles. It's Gentiles are and non-Jew. And in the... Those days, and just according to the law of God, as far as we could go into the temple as non-Jews was the court of the Gentiles. If we were seeking God, that's as far as we could go in the temple. And um, this marketplace would have been set up in the court of the Gentiles. And so it would impact, you know, it's impacting the people who already know God because they're coming and they're bringing their sacrifices and they're being price gouged. But it's also really impacting the Gentiles because that's the only place they can go to Experience God and to witness the worship of God by the Jews is this court of the Gentiles, this outer court of it. Now, for them, it had replaced worship and prayer. It was, you know, a marketplace for them. So, this didn't happen in a day. The temple didn't become this in a day or a month or a year. It happened slowly as people got off track. And you know, God's house became a business, and the religious leaders of the temple. Eventually, they didn't initially look at it this way, but eventually, they didn't look at the people of God as people God had saved from slavery in Egypt and delivered into the Promised Land, the very thing they're going to be celebrating at this feast. They looked at them as sources of income. The excuse me, term in the trade for this is. Uh, a modern term in the trade for this is giving units. There are churches, places where they will call you a giving unit if you attend. I've never heard that term here, as this is not directed at this church at all, but it exists, it's out there. Um, I was at a church uh, once. And um, they were going to have, this is sort of a modern-day way that things like this can happen, they were going to have a capital stewardship campaign. That's their fancy word for it. Now, if you were to look at those words and their meaning, it sounds like they're going to teach you how to take care of your money. That doesn't sound so bad, right? sounds like they're going to teach you how to take care of your money. So they hired these consultants to put on the capital stewardship campaign. The consultants come in. Uh, These are experts at talking people into giving money. And um, they help people calculate how much they can give and then they misuse some Bible verses to tell those people they just need to have faith that God will provide for them so they can give more. Now, mind you, these experts don't live that way. But they want you to live that way. And as soon as the congregation finishes filling out this form that says, you know, I pledge for the next one year or two years or three years to give X dollars a month. And they're stretching their, out, their output because they want to give to God because these people have got them fired up about this. As Soon as they turn in those forms, these experts, these people, they're gone. That's all they have to do with the church. And now 20% of everything that you give to the church because you filled out this form is going to go to them back in Chicago or wherever they are. And, you know, that's the kind of person, those are the kind of people that look at other people in the church as resources. You know, they don't look at them as God-saved people. I think if I would sort of dare to speak on behalf of God, I think it makes them angry. I think that based on this passage we could say it really does make him angry when when people are treated that way. And I think sometimes that someone will have an experience with a church or an organization where they think, oh, they're just all about money, and maybe they were. But what they might not realize is that God doesn't like it any more than they do. You know, God God's not like that at all. And they, they let it represent God and it's sad, but God is not all about money. He is all about people. He's all about relationship with them. So, what do we take away from from this passage? I think the first thing to take away is that we, ourselves, we personally, are to have a heart for others knowing God. See, God... When God saved the Jews out of Egypt, he tells them, he says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. He brought them out and he wants to have relationship with them. Now this is to the Jews. He wants to have relationship with the Jews. He brought them out of slavery for this. And, you know, in our passage here, the people selling the animals and exchanging the money in the middle of this Passover feast that's celebrating this freedom, see the people as a resource. They don't see him as somebody for a relationship with God. But Jesus didn't miss that, not for a second. Um, he saw the people as eternal souls that need relationship with the Father. And so that is what produced this zeal in him, is seeing that we need that. And, and we you know, we're to grow into the image of Christ, so we're to have the same heart for people, a zeal for them having a relationship with God. Whether it's for them to come to know Him, if they don't know Him already, or for them to be able to have a deeper relationship with Him, spend time worshiping and praying, it should be important to us. So, you know, first thing to take away is just think about is that something that is in my heart? And you know, much like the temple can be used as a marketplace and a place of prayer, they kind of, one excludes the other, you can't treat people as a resource for yourself and care about their relationship with God. One thing excludes the other. Um, whichever you choose, it crowds the other out. So it's a new year. And we have a tendency, just, again, God knows us. He is very gracious with us. He doesn't condemn us. He just gently pokes at us. And we have a tendency with time to drift into apathy or indifference, the opposite of zeal towards people. It's a good time to remember your past slavery, not to give it any power in your life, but to be thankful for God bringing us out of it and to remember your freedom, thankful that God brought us into freedom, let God do some cleansing in the temple of your heart, and to have a renewed passion for people's relationships with the Father. We're to have a heart for people knowing God. That's one thing. The second thing I, I think we should take out of this. it comes from the last verse in this passage where the disciples quote this um, prophecy about Jesus that says, zeal for your house has consumed me. And Jesus here shows a zeal, and the zeal is for people to have a relationship with God, um, and he has a zeal for you to have a relationship with God. Now, Jesus is... We're told he's the express image of God's person. That is, you look at Jesus, what he cares about, what he does, that's what the Father's like. That's what God's like, express image. He's this exact, this exact image. He's an exact representation. So that means that God also has a zeal to have a relationship with you. Last week, we celebrated Christmas. Christmas. I guess technically this week. We celebrated Christmas. And one of the verses that gets read quite often around Christmas time is from Isaiah. So Isaiah 9.6. And it says, Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulders. And God goes on to describe the coming of Jesus and the setting up of his kingdom. And at the end of that thought, the end of Isaiah 9.7, he says, The zeal of... Of the Lord of hosts will do this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts. Now, we read a lot of things about God in the Bible. We read about Him creating the heavens and the earth. It doesn't talk about His zeal there. Just He just spoke. He just sort of did it, right? We read about a lot of things about Jesus. We read about Him being falsely accused and arrested carried away, fake trial at night, illegal trial at night. We don't read anything about his zeal there. He doesn't rise up in anger, nothing like that. But when it comes to God's plan for relationship for us, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, we read about the zeal of God. God is zealous about his redemption plan for us. He is zealous about his relationship with us. Jesus, the same thing. When we read about this temple situation where worship was being replaced by something else, where prayer was being replaced by something else, we see that zeal consumed him. He was consumed by zeal. To the point that he made a whip and he chased people out of there. Chase the oxen and the sheep out of there. And that is how much Jesus cared about that. And we can get this sense that God and Jesus are very even keel. Because it's mostly true, right? There's a storm on the Sea of Galilee and the disciples think they're going to sink and Jesus is sleeping. He is even keel about most things. But not in this. For some of us, this idea of of God being zealous for relationship is really foreign to us. In fact, if we're honest, for most of us, it's really foreign for us. Because most people are not zealous for relationship with us. Our experience is not that people are zealous for relationship with us. And so you tell me that there's this God who is greater than the heavens and earth that he created, and that he has a zeal, an intense interest in relationship with me. And I think, well, that doesn't match my experience with people. But God's not a person. He's not a man. He really does have this interest in relationship with you. He expresses it, says the zeal of the Lord is why he sends his son to redeem us. The zeal of Jesus is why he cleanses that temple so we can worship him and we can be close to him. Now, he's a gentleman. Sometimes we mistake how he doesn't force us into relationship with him for him not caring about it. We mistake that for indifference or apathy. That's him being a gentleman. He wants you to be able to choose him. He gives you The opportunity for it but he gives you a hundred percent freedom for it too he's not going to force you into it but he is there and he wants that relationship he wants you to enjoy relationship with him to spend time with him have conversation with him enjoy being in his presence now some of you say i don't know how to enjoy relationship with god how do i do that um and it, it's actually found, it's, it's simple, it's accomplished in the simple things that Jesus was protecting as he cleansed the temple here. You know, people were coming there to pray, to talk to God. People were coming there to worship. We did that this morning. Just enjoy the singing time of the Lord. You know, just spend some time in prayer, spend some time in worship with him. You know, back then you had to go to the temple for it, but today we're the temple of the Holy Spirit and God dwells in us. And you can be in your car listening to a worship song and be singing to God. You know, you can enjoy a relationship with him anywhere you are. If you want to start a relationship with God, if you haven't done that yet, there will be men and women up here to pray with after the service. Um, If you want to, they'd be happy to answer any questions you have. They're wise. They know what they're talking about. Ask them about him. They'll also be up here to pray with you after the service for anything you might need. I'm going to close in prayer. We'll have another worship song. And then, uh, yeah. Father, thank you for your zeal for us. I pray that you would imprint it on my heart, imprint it on the heart of every person here, how important, how passionate you are for relationship with us. And that, you know, that would just, I don't know, that would be our experience, our reality, our joy. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.